This is Sunday's Psychedelic Spirit with Aaron Akulis, brought to you by the Peace on Drugs podcast. From Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel. Marching to work in winter, a thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. One more line from that book is, love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in his spiritual being, his inner self. I remember a podcast with Duncan Trussell where uh, he did a monologue about the earth being encased in pure love. I don't remember exactly how he put it, and um, I have no idea which episode it was, so I'm just going to kind of reimagine it, explain it in the way I remember. So like, imagine the earth encased in pure love and forgiveness and understanding. It runs all through the earth's sky. And from the earth's soil sprout little living things that will show you the pure love that is all around you. All you have to do is eat some of the fruit of the mycelium that blossoms in the form of little golden-capped mushrooms that scientists have dubbed psilocybin cubensis. At least cubensis is the only kind I've ever tried. There are others. Or you can cook up a a button-shaped flowering cactus called peyote and ingest it. Or mix some vines up in the Amazon and brew what the uh, indigenous shamans call ayahuasca. There are many other ways, and um, like there are man-made synthetic chemicals like MDMA or PCP or ketamine, um, or my personal favorite, the semi-synthetic LSD. And um, the love that the earth is wrapped in will reveal itself. And I'm serious. Like, I've experienced this myself, and it's absolutely true. The first time I smoked DMT, um, I, I met this guy at a bar uh, in Fort Myers, and, um, and we got to talk, and he had a molecule on his hat. And I said, what molecule is that? He's like, oh, it's a DMT molecule. And uh, we started talking psychedelics, and I told him I'd never tried DMT, and he said he had some. He had some on him, so we went to my car, and he put a little bit in my bowl, and I took a hit, and the first thing I felt, and it was immediate, was pure love. Like the universe wrapped its arms around me and told me, everything is all right. Now, talking about substances, like how could a substance that's so powerful that shows you the pure love and makes you feel immediately just loved by everything, not be addictive, you know? Like, why wouldn't you just want to do that all the time? Because that could be dangerous. But the reason is, is because the love it shows you is real. And pure love will be honest with you. I remember when I, I got some from him, and I did it like three times in a week. And the third time, it told me in this ineffable way, 
because there's no actual words, but the the universe, the place you go to on it, actually like communicates with you in a way that's hard to understand in this realm. But when you're there, you get it. And basically, what it said without words was like what it asked, "What are you doing here? You shouldn't be back here so soon." And it was kind of an awkward trip. It was like, "Oh, I need to you know, not do this so much," and because that's pure love. And you know, it, it reveals itself as pure love the first time you do it. But then it looks out for you if you, you know, want to escape from reality too much. It's like, no, no, you need to be here for this experience. I'm just, it's just letting you know. I almost think it's like, part of it's like when, when you finally do die, like this is where you're going to come to, this place of pure love. And it's just kind of uh, letting you know this. And that's why these they're doing these experiments where they, people that are terminal, that are extremely depressed about, the fact that they're going to die, they're giving them these mushroom trips. And DMT is a, is a tryptamine, and uh, psilocybin mushrooms are also in the same family. And they're giving people these um, these extremely uh, or these potent psychedelic mushroom trips that are at the end of their lives, and they're coming back with this extreme happiness. They're no longer afraid of death, or a, a high percentage of them, and they're going to start prescribing it. That's why psychedelics in certain places are starting to become legal for medicinal use because it show, I think it shows people that there is something else and it's that place of pure love and people feel that. And, you know, I think that when you open up, when you do some of these psychedelics and you feel that, you feel that pure love, it does, it makes you feel content with the fact that this life is temporary because you know that at the end, that place will be waiting for you, that place that you know, we call nirvana, or the Christians would call heaven. Though they tend to see it in a humanistic way, you know, with, with roads made of gold, and it's like a huge castle or a big church. But, um, you know, I've been there, and it's something far more magical than like a rich person's city. So now, and I don't know if this place will be, is only going to be like a transition from our world into oblivion, which is a scary thought. But um, if it is, it's a very satisfying way into going back into everything else, whatever that is, whatever oblivion is. But I'd like to think it's not. You know, I'd like to think that it's an afterlife of, of some sort or a transition to one or maybe reincarnation. But, but like I said on uh, my Paranoid Androids episode, we shouldn't believe things only because we want them to be true. You know, we, that might damage our immunity for bullshit. So I'll ultimately say... I don't know. I'll honestly admit, you know, I do not know. I don't. But having had the DMT experience, I believe that it's definitely possible that our consciousness could transcend our physical bodies that inhabit this earthly dimension. And after using DMT, I believe that our consciousness are all plugged into this pure love. It's a universal connection to all life. So love, love is this week's podcast, this week's Sunday's Psychedelic Spirit. You know, I can't believe it took me seven episodes of, of the Sunday's Psychedelic Spirit to get to this. But um, it started when I was reading uh, the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. If you listen to my uh, very drunk podcast, the New Orleans special, there was a part when Brandon and I are sitting at this at a table at this restaurant having lunch. And he tells the story about how the, uh, the, 
from the book that the Jews in the concentration camp would know if someone had given up on life if they saw them smoking cigarettes because uh, cigarettes were their currency. So you didn't smoke them, you traded them for food and things. And um, you know, after Branham told the story, I looked it up, looked up the book on eBay, and um, I bought it for four dollars and nine cents, including shipping. And I remember this because I made I made a big deal about it. You know, I was like, "This is the world we live in." I just at a restaurant clicked something on my phone, and now a physical book is is being shipped and going to arrive at my house for four dollars and nine cents. So anyway. I've, I lately I've been I've been struggling with some depression, um, or I was struggling with some depression, and I was thinking a lot about death. And um, that book came in the mail after I got back from New Orleans. The book came in the mail, "Man's Search for Meaning," and I couldn't have been happier to see that title because it addressed the exact thing that I, that was weighing on me. And immediately, the author starts with his experience in the concentration camp, and it's so fucking awful what they had to go through. So tragic. And you know, like this wasn't a plane crash where people end up stranded and having to survive with nothing in the cold. This wasn't an accident at all. This was by design. Human beings created a world where innocent women and children and men were gassed to death and burned. And others were imprisoned. And men were, and um, in the book, so when the men showed up to the to, to Auschwitz, the men were taken to one of two sides. The men fit to work were taken to the work camp on the right, where they would be fed next to nothing, uh, given no clothes other than what they had on their backs, no jackets. You know, They'd be forced to work 12 hours a day in the freezing cold, digging ditches and rock solid from you know fr- solid frozen mud. If they became too ill or weak, they would join the others, the others who were sent to the other side of Auschwitz. Those who looked too weak to work were sent straight to the gas chambers. When the author, Viktor Frankl, arrived, um, he was sent to the right, to the work camp, and his friend that he was with was sent to the left side. And uh, once inside his camp, on his side, he asked another inmate where his friend was. He said, my friend was sent to the left, like, what's going on with him? And the inmate pointed to the smoke that was coming out of the high chimney said, your friend's right there. It took, uh, it took Victor Frankel a minute to comprehend what the inmate had actually told him. So I'm reading about the awful conditions of life in a Nazi concentration camp. And, you know, you know sometimes when you're down and so, you know, someone will say something like, well, think about what's going on with the, you know, with the world. You could have been born in a third world labor into third world labor, living on a bowl of rice a day, like like somehow because my life compared to theirs is actually great, that that should make me happy, and it never does. Knowing other people suffer so much worse only makes me feel worse for them. But this book, this book has been different, you know. There's this one part where he's talking about how some of the inmates would talk about, like they would fantasize about once the war's over and they're released from the camps, the meals that they planned to cook, you know, when they were liberated after the war, they, they would, uh, while they were digging the ditches with frostbitten toes, hardly any meat on their bones, they'd talk about the feast they, they were going to prepare for each other. And it helped them to pass the time. 
they dream up recipes and they talk about different recipes they used to cook and what they were going to prepare for each other. So, so last night I was thinking of what I wanted to make for dinner and I decided on a, like grilled veggie burgers with homemade little, little burger patties and a side of avocado fries in the, in the air fryer. And I went to Publix and bought the ingredients and I listened to music, made dinner for me and my wife. And I did all this in the happiest of moods. It's the happiest I've been in a while. And, and I know it's because this time, nothing I did, not looking up the recipes, making a grocery list, shopping, prepping or cooking, nothing I did was taken for granted. I really felt just how lucky and privileged I am to be able to live the way I do. So this morning I, uh, I dove back into the book and he started talking about how in his darkest moments he could feel his wife there with him and that she felt so real. And he said, once all of your earthly possessions have been stripped away down to you know the meat on your bones, the shoes on your feet, they're almost gone and um, you've almost lost the will to live. All that's left is pure love. The only thing, the only thing giving you a shred of will to live is love. And so as soon as I read this, I knew that this week's psychedelic spirit was going to be love. It's the core of our existence, and it flows throughout the entire universe. So I'd like to read something from the Bible, from 1 John 4, verse 16. God is love. Whoever live in love lives in God, and God in him. And I love that line, God is love, because if this is true, so would the inverse be true. Love is God. Love is God. I mean, just meditate on that idea. It's been said in a, you know, a million ways, right? Love conquers all. All you need is love. Uh, there's a few other cool things about, you know, things I read about love, little sayings like, love, uh, life is the flower for which love is the honey. Love is the whole thing. We are only pieces. And I thought of an interesting thing to explain in an unusual way just how love flows through the universe. Um, so I was, uh, I was working, doing construction, and I was in this, in this huge like, garage by myself painting. Uh, all, we had taken down all the cabinet doors, and all the cabinet doors were laid out on these tables, and I was painting them. And there was this one ladder we had laid out a huge ladder that some of the pieces were set on. Well, there was a mud dauber nest in one of the little, the rungs that, of the ladder. And I watched as this mud dauber, which is a hornet, or not a hornet, a wasp. It's like a black wasp. And I'm in North Carolina at the time. So I don't know if you have them wherever you're listening, but in North Carolina, we have mud daubers. I say they're black wasps and they make their nests out of mud and it hardens. So it looks like these little, little, clay, red clay, like cylinders all together. And I watched this wasp flying out and then bringing stuff back to the nest over and over again all day. And so I looked up the mud daubers, what, what he was doing. And, and it was so fascinating when I found out they, so what they do is they lay their young in the nest and then to feed their young, this is just incredible to me. They actually fly out and find spiders, little spiders, and they sting the spiders with just enough venom to paralyze the spider, but not kill the spider. Then they carry the spider to the nest 
and they stuff the spiders into the nest so that when they're young, you know, finally, whatever they do, hatch or become whatever, you know, whatever happens when they're ready to eat, they have food. They have food for, you know, for their young. So it's like that's just so such an intricate thing that they, they figured out that they could do that um, it just blows my mind and they're caring for their young. And um, so, you know, you might say that the, the spiders didn't get love, right? But this is the circle of life. And as I said earlier on the podcast, like I think death, death is like a release into the arms of pure love. I think our, our appreciation, our understanding, our respect for the circle of life the balance of nature has been severely damaged by our species move into agriculture. As we began to dominate nature and remove ourselves from the food chain, we we set the earth the earth off balance. And and now like we could be looking at mass extinction or we are looking at mass extinction. And if we don't figure out how to fix it, I mean it, there's so many problems in the earth that we're seeing happen with global warming and climate change everything else. And um, like we, we've become a species so terrified of death because we've lost our connection with nature, which assures us that death is a beautiful, as beautiful as life. But um, back to love, the wasp. We, we, t- we think of a, a creature like a wasp, an insect, as, as something too simple to have a consciousness, a self-awareness, right? Like, it's not it's not aware of what it's doing any more than a calculator is aware of what it's calculating. But I find that equally as crazy. That wasp is performing such an intricate task in finding spiders that are the right size and species to be food and then stinging them with just enough venom to paralyze but not kill them, carrying the paralyzed spiders to the nest, the nest of mud that the wasp herself built and packing the spiders inside one by one. I actually watched this, like once I read about it, I actually looked closer at the wasp and I could see it was carrying these little spiders. It was so crazy. And like, I think that, you know, science studies nature and I think it misses something very important, something that unseeable with our eyes, unknowable with our brains. All, all science is an interpretation of truth because all observations are through our own consciousness, making objective science impossible. I think that pure love is deeper than like oxytocin or the release of chemicals in our brain. I think that the wasp's understanding of its love for its young is real. You know, one, once we've gotten to uh, to more, once we get to more intelligent uh, intelligence by human standards, at least species like mammals. We know the love that they feel is real because we can actually gauge it. They, they share many of the same neurochemicals as us. Um, those, those are the things we should consider when we eat meat. Like I said earlier about, uh, about our detachment from nature, if we hunt and kill something, we release it into pure love. But what of, what of animals, an animal's life in an industrial farm? All you see at the store is a package of burger meat and a brand name on a jug of milk. You don't feel the animal's suffering, which is real, when her calves are taken from her far too young before she's ready to stop nursing them so that we can have the milk she produced for her young. We don't feel the pain of the calf's life who grew up in tight quarters until big enough to be slaughtered so you can have a burger at Wendy's. 
The point is that we should consider love in all of our decisions. Think about our ancestors, hunters and gatherers. They used every part of the animal they killed and only killed as many as they needed to feed the tribe. They never captured them and bred them into captivity and sold meat to neighboring tribes. They hunted in accordance with the circle of life, accordance with nature. They acted out of love, love for the earth, for the prey, and for their tribe, their children. I remember reading uh, the book Empire of the Summer Moon, and when the last of the Native American tribes of the Great Plains were forced into, onto uh, government reservations, one of the chiefs who had fought against America and lived as a free tribesman and you know, now was a prisoner to reservation life, his name was um, Quana Parker, I believe. Quana Parker. He was, uh, years after he had been on the reservation, he was granted uh, access to leave to take his grandchildren on a buffalo hunt to show them the ways of their people. But when they rode their horses out onto the great American plains, all they found were bones. The white settlers had near drove the buffalo into extinction. The Indians lived in the, in the Americas for over 15,000 years. And their, their wildlife, their forests, were just the way that they'd found them when their ancestors first crossed the Bering Strait. But once the white settlers showed up in 1492, it only took them a few hundred years to completely eradicate some species, like a parrot native to the Carolinas called the Carolina parakeet, which is now extinct. And the Carolina parakeet was a bird that went extinct probably because of the amount of love that they had for each other, a love that the settlers exploited. You see, the Carolina parakeet, they flew in flocks and they would you know, eat the crops, eat on the crops that the settlers were growing. So again, this becomes a problem with agriculture because the farmers left with, what do you do about these birds that are eating the crops? My children are gonna starve if, I don't, if these crops don't grow because they don't hunt and gather they are an agricultural society. So these big flocks would come in and start eating their corn or whatever they were growing. And what, so what the farmer would do is go out there with a shotgun and shoot at the flock. And the problem with the Carolina parakeet was, is say you shot around a bird shot into the flock and four of the birds dropped from the sky with bullets in them. Well, the other birds that were flying wouldn't just leave and get out of the, wouldn't just flee. They would dive after their fallen comrades. That's the love that they had for their, their own kind. They were like, oh no, so, you know, this bird just fell out of the sky. They dive after and try to save him. So the farmer could just sit there and shoot at the flock and they would just keep diving at the fallen ones until the whole flock was gone. So one farmer could take out a whole flock in one shooting. So it did not take long for these new agricultural settlers to wipe the species from the face of the earth. And it's such a sad story. But again, what does the farmer do, especially as a farmer? This is before they had any kind of system in place to keep track of certain species and, you know, whether they were going to survive. And I don't even think these poor farmers, because they didn't have a lot, you know, they, they, they struggled a lot in the early settlers in this country. There was a lot of death, a lot of disease, and a lot of starvation. So the idea that, well, this bird's more important than my own children is not, not going to... So lo the love for their children and the bird's love for their own kind, those things clashed. 
and a whole species was wiped from the planet. And you could say, well, this is where love goes wrong, but it's not. It's where our society, the way that we've built and tried to manipulate nature, our species have done has done something awful. And, you know, as I've, I've said constantly, and I'll say again, that there's, there's not a lot we can do about going back to agriculture. I mean, going from agriculture to hunter and gathering. Now there's too many people, so we have to figure it out. And I think that's why conservation and spending money on environmental things is so important. And um, we, but we, our country seems to always choose ecology, or we choose economy over ecology. I think we need to start. Uh, everybody start, you know. I think about half the country cares and is paying attention. The other half denies climate change. So these are just, you know. But just thinking back to what we we're talking about, though, when, when we came over here, what we did to, to a land that was absolutely pristine, and we didn't come over here and sit and ask the people who lived here, "How do you live? We, you know, this is your home." Then they basically were like, we're going to take this land. And they didn't even understand what land ownership meant. So to them, they're like, take the land. Sure, use the land. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is all of our land. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you're on my property. You have to leave. So like, what? What do you mean your property? They didn't. They would sign documents with the U.S. government about you know land treaties because it didn't really make sense to them. Their whole culture was based on this is everybody's land. They were actually living in accordance with nature, in accordance with the universe or God. So... So anyway, the white settlers get here, and what happens with the buffalo? They brought the buffalo population down from 30 to 60 million when they arrived to 325 by 1884. And this has to do with agricultural societies, which are far too populous, but, um, but we aren't able at this point to go back to hunting and gathering. So what we need to do is to be conscious of the natural world. See love in all of the earth and give your love because love flows through everything. But we have to slow down. We have to slow down our incessant flow of just bullshit going through our heads. It's been it's been fed all these advertisements and hidden messages on television and on the internet telling us to crave this, want this, eat this. Mmm, I need, need, need. Ah. And it's, it's driving us crazy and we don't even realize it. We need to slow down our thoughts, meditate. You know, get into the moment. Feel the love of the universe. If you, if you let this love in, you will begin to instinctually live in accordance and balance with life. And this will cause less suffering. So this week I chose love because I think it's such a larger concept than the Hallmark or rom-com way that we, we boxed it in. Love in its purest form transcends sex and gender and genre and it conquers without the slightest problem. Hate and fear, sadness. But the absence of love magnifies sadness and loneliness and fear and hate. And another thing we should meditate on is how love conquers. Think about it this way. Hate plus hate equals hate all around. But love plus hate equals love. The hate is knocked out of the equation by love. Think about how you can implement this into your daily life. Someone is being an asshole, a family member, a friend, or an enemy at work. Maybe they're arguing with you about something where you, you know you're 100% right and it's driving you crazy. Respond with love. How does that work? It may mean that you might, you might be the one who's, you might have to say that you're the one who's wrong, even though you know you're not. 
Tell them you're sorry for upsetting them and you'll try to see their side. And obviously don't let an asshole use you or manipulate you. But, but you know, we try to, what we try to do is send out unconditional love. I like to do a little mind experiment sometimes and think about, you know, something horrible that happened like, like take 9-11 and think about how our reaction was. America, we, we were united with, the, with each other when that happened. We were like, you know, united in our sadness. But there was a lot of hate from our country to the Islam, to the Islamic world. And I try to think of, you know, the way that, you know, the Middle East is now after our response with the Iraq war and, you know, what we did and we kind of went over there and started manipulating oil pipelines and, you know, it all became about money and power and greed. And if you think about the reasons that the terrorist group attacked the World Trade Center in the first place was that they were angry about these huge, huge corporate machines that were kind of greasing the wheels of this of this thing that had been kind of stripping a lot of the oil profits from the Middle East into the United States and trade policies they didn't agree with. And I'm not saying that what they did was right at all. You, murdering people is never okay and it was definitely wrong. But what if we would have responded differently? What if we would have responded with love and we would have said, you know what, we're, we're not going to go over there and create any new wars. We're not going to act out out of hate. We're going to say, we're going to look at ourselves and say, we're doing some things wrong. There's a reason why when that happened, there was parties in the streets in some of these Middle Eastern places where people were burning American flags and celebrating the attack. So we do not think it's that that's an appropriate response. We do not think that the, the innocent people that died, it's, it's fair or it's right. But at the same time, we do not want more innocent people to die. So we're going to look at ourselves. We're also going to look at our relationship with the other countries and figure out how we can stop something like this from happening in the future. And clearly, we could still go after just the few people that were involved to stop them from doing more damage. But just them. We're not going to send troops and tanks and bombs because so many innocent people have died in the Middle East from our response that it's made, that we've created a whole new generation of terrorists. So you can't tell me that we responded correctly. I think that when you respond with something horrible with love, you could see more people over there being like, if they saw us respond with love and understanding and saying, we have to look at ourselves also, you know, also we want to stop the terrorists from doing it again, but we also look at ourselves, you'd probably have a new generation of people that loved America and were like, that's the way to do it. But we didn't do that. So I like to think about things like that or it doesn't have to be something as huge as 9-11, because clearly if you think you have a better idea for the way the United States should respond, you can't make that decision. You don't, you don't have the power. But you can do that kind of thing in your own life. Something bad that happens to you personally, how can you respond in a way that someone else is going to have more respect for you afterwards because you didn't handle it the way that they expected you to? They expected you to get mad. They might have wanted you to get mad, but you responded with love. So let's try and spend this week by meditating on love. Contemplate its existence as a universal fabric that everyone has access to if they open up to it. Let's open up to it and let it in. And let's let our love out. When you interact with people at the store or your job or the park, when you look into their eyes, see them as a person who has love to give and needs love to receive. And smile. Tell them you love them. I dare you. Tell a stranger. Say, I love you. And sometimes they'll, get a, they'll, they'll be embarrassed and they don't know what to say, but they're never offended. And, um, and I've had people come up to me and 
say that to me, you know, a few times in my life. And um, my buddy Joe actually was the first one I saw him do it to so, you know, just say it to strangers. And some people would respond, "I love you." Some people would look confused. So my my response is always immediate. If anybody ever says, "I love you," I go, "I love you too," and I give him a big smile. And it's just a, and it's a cool interaction to have with somebody with a stranger. So that's it for this week. Smile at the world. Let them know you love them. You love the planet, and the universe loves you too. As always, have a great week, month, year, life. We're gonna let my wife Megan take us out of this one with a song. Love is all you need.